Church, I want to invite you to remain standing for the Word of God. Our passage this morning comes from the book of Esther, chapter 6. It says, On the night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Am I squealing? Do y'all hear a sound? Am I good now, Jim? Am I good? Okay. Well, as, as a student of history, I've always been fascinated about how things can pivot or change, and the trajectory of history can change on what seems like an insignificant event, something that seems pretty mundane. For example, I'm reading a book right now called Empire of the Flower Moon, and it chronicles the rise and the fall of the Comanche Indians the most powerful Indian tribe in the history of America. But if you look at the history of the Comanches, that was not always the case. For many, many, many years, the Comanche were a small, primitive, kind of backwards tribe that resided in the northwest part of our country, a tribe that other tribes kind of thumbed their nose at a bit. And so the question is, what happened? What led to the shift how did this insignificant tribe become one of the most prominent, powerful tribes in the history of our country? And the answer is, anybody? Okay, you haven't read the book yet. That's okay. The answer is the horse. 
the horse. So horses were introduced in North America as the conquistadors came over, okay, the Spaniards came over, and those horses through different raids and just kind of carelessness migrated. Some horses went up north, and there they came into contact with the Comanche. And the Comanche were legendary for their skills ultimately with the horse. They just took to the horse, and they, they miraculously were able to breed them, and they rode them, and they fought with them, and they became experts in the horse. And because they became experts in the horse, they rose to prominence within the lands of North America, and no tribe could compete with the Comanche. And so the arrival of the horse on the soils of North America forever changed the face of North America and the Native American tribes who resided within it from the Comanche on down. And as we will see this morning, as we continue our journey in the book of Esther, we're going to read about another what seems like insignificant event that is going to change the course of human history, an event as mundane and seemingly insignificant as insomnia. And yet what we'll find is a sleepless night for the king is going to produce a brand new day for the Jews, a brand new day for the Jews. And so let me start by kind of recapping where we're at in the story, recapping where we're at in the book of Esther, because where we're at is we're in the middle of a number of plots. We've got a lot of plots going on. So we've got Mordecai's plot to kill all the Jews because, excuse me, Haman's plot to kill all the Jews because Mordecai didn't bow. And then we have Mordecai's plot to send Esther to the king to beg. And then we have Esther's plot of going to the king ultimately to save her people. And so when we get to chapter 6, we have these different plots going on. And we have two major things on the horizon, okay? And one is this. The first thing on the horizon is Esther has called a second meeting with the king and with Haman. She wants the second audience with them, another banquet. And and why, we don't exactly know. We just know that she's called for this second meeting. So that's one thing that's on the horizon. And the second thing that's on the horizon is Mordecai, excuse me, is Haman is ready to get the killing started. So he wants to kill all the Jews, and he wants to start with Mordecai. And so that's what we read about at the end of chapter 5 that we looked at last week. It says there, then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman is upset because he sees stinking Mordecai. And he goes home, and he complains. He tells them about the feast he has coming up with the king and the queen, and they recommend, why don't you basically set up a a crucifixion pole? Why don't you set up a, a pole to hang Mordecai on, and you can do it tomorrow. Just go tell the king to do it tomorrow, and that will be done. So Haman goes to bed that night. He goes from being despondent and a little bit sad to pretty excited about what lays ahead. I mean, he's got a big day tomorrow. 
he's going to meet with the king and the queen, and he's going to kill Mordecai. And so he rests his head on his pillow, and he goes to sleep. But unfortunately for him, as he enters into a deep sleep, the king cannot get any sleep at all. Like he's just having one of those nights. And I imagine all of us have been there at some point, right? We just can't get to sleep. And maybe you drank caffeine too late. Maybe you've had too much screen time. Maybe your beloved university lost on the last play. But something, something is causing you to have a hard time going to sleep. My issue is typically the opposite. I'm more narcoleptic than insomnia. I can fall asleep at a red light, you know? But those rare times where I've had insomnia, they're brutal. And and you hit that space. And you know this. You hit that space. And you ask yourself, what do I do? Do I keep trying to go to sleep? Or do I admit defeat and do something else? And so that's where the king is at. And his decision is, I'm going to have the chronicles read to me. Okay? Now, now here's the deal. The, the kings of great, great ancient empires always kept annals of their history. And so my wife, Victoria, she makes uh, photo albums for our family for every year. And sometimes we'll stop and we'll go back and we'll look at a photo album. Oh, that was 2014. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was amazing. And so we look at that, that family history, that photo history. Well, this is a history of his reign that he says, why don't you read to me? And maybe I can go to sleep or maybe I can just enjoy hearing about all the great things I've done, hearing about the history of my kingship. And so his servants, and they go and they get the annals and they come back and they just so happen to grab the book or to open to the section that describes how Mordecai had intervened. Uh, An event we read about back in chapter two where Mordecai overheard an assassination plot and took that information to Esther, who then took it to Xerxes, who then had it investigated, and they found out it was true. And that is the section that is read to the king while he can't sleep. And I want you to stop and think about that for a second, because that's amazing. Think about all that had to happen for that to happen, right? The king can't sleep. He has insomnia. Then he decides he wants to, of all things, the chronicles read to him. And remember, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants during his time. He has a harem. He could make a feast. He could say, come play me some music. He could go on a walk throughout the palace. But no, he says, I want to read some history. Go get the chronicles. And then of all the things that could be read from the chronicles, What's read is the story of Mordecai, hours before he is to be put to death. So, so much had to happen for this to happen, and it's not coincidence, it's providence. It's the providence of God. And and I've said throughout this journey and throughout the book of Esther, though God's name is never mentioned in the book, his presence is undeniable. Like he's orchestrating this symphony of events. And we see his presence fleshed out in one providential event after another. 
earlier in our study, I don't know if it was week one or week two, I described providence, the providence of God, as this mysterious intersection between God's sovereignty, his control over human history, and the free choices we make as his moral creatures, as those made in his image. And so the providence of God is this unique intersection between the two. And I said that we are entering into a place of real mystery with God. This is the depths of, of who God is. And it's in, this, in these depths that we, we really hit the limits of our understanding, of our finite minds, when we come into the divine mind of God. But when it comes to this mysterious intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, I have argued, I have articulated a position within Christianity Christian theology known as Christian compatibilism, which is just saying that God's sovereignty and that the responsibility of human choice somehow are compatible, that they intersect, that they meet in a way that we can't fully explain or describe because the scripture teaches both. And and Christian compatibilism really has two main points. So in some ways, it's, it's, it's hard to totally comprehend, but it's easy to understand. Because what Christian compatibilism says is, number one, God is sovereign. He's in control. But his control does not make us robots. That his sovereignty over human history does not reduce me to being an automaton, to having no real choice, to having no opportunity or to... to follow or to serve or to make real meaningful choices. So that's point one. And then the second point is that human beings are morally responsible creatures. Or as D.A. Carson says, we make, we significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions and so forth. And they are, and we are rightly held accountable for our actions, but our choices never make God absolutely contingent on what we choose. Because he's sovereign. So God's never up there. So like last night, and this will be the last thing I say about the game, but I'm, I'm watching the fourth quarter and like I'm, I have like 177 pulse or something, you know? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Are they going to win? Are they going to win? Answer's no. But I didn't know that at the time. Okay? God's not like that. God's not going, oh man, what's he going to do? Oh, this is so nerve-wracking. Like, that's not God. And so we make real choices and real decisions, but God's not just like, oh, I have no idea what they're going to do. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. And so these two truths that are taught in the Scriptures, we say, man, Scripture is our authority. We're going to roll with that, even though we don't fully understand it, and we're going to reside in the mystery and the tension of these two things. And we hold this together in an essential way because it has major implications, in particular, for good and evil, for how we understand good and evil, right? And so let me, let me once again, give you a quote from D.A. Carson, who I think is helpful here. It's a long quote, but I think it's helpful. It says, if compatibilism is true, and if God is good, all of which the Bible affirms, then it must be the case that God stands behind good and evil in somewhat different ways. He stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. 
To put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty, yet the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents and secondary causes. If this sounds a bit too convenient for God, my initial response is that according to the Bible, this is the only God there is, there is no other. And so here's the point, here's what Carson says. He says, look at what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is that God is good and God only does good, period. There is no darkness in him. He is pure, he is good, he is holy in everything that he does. And he's sovereign over a world with real heartache and evil. And so while he's the cause of all that is good, he is never the first cause of anything that is evil. In essence, God created a world in which evil would ultimately exist, but he's not the cause of the evil that exists. He's a secondary cause. He created you and me, and we choose to do evil. And so he created us, but he doesn't cause evil through us. He is good. He is good all the time in everything he does. And you may hear that and go, well, that seems convenient for God. Seems to get to have his cake and eat it too. And you may say, I am not satisfied with that. Okay. My response would be what my uh, Spanish teacher in middle school used to tell me, Senor Oero, when something would happen that I didn't like. And he'd say, Miguelito, tough cacahuates. <laughs> tough peanuts, man. See, we're made in the image of God, not the other way around. And God gets to be God. And God's truth is not primarily designed for our comfort. And there's times you just bow before and you say, okay, I don't get it. I don't totally like it. I don't totally understand it. But you're God and I'm not. And I'll submit to it. And I say all this because I know the providence of God can be a difficult thing to grasp, but the providence of God is also what makes the story of Esther so magnificent, right? Because it's no coincidence the king can't sleep the night before his meeting with Haman and Esther. It's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that he reads of Mordecai's heroism the day before Mordecai is to be killed. It's no coincidence Esther's the queen. It's no coincidence that Mordecai raised her. It's no coincidence that Mordecai somehow heard of the assassination plot, which went into the Chronicles, which were read during the insomnia, which will ultimately save his life. It's not a coincidence. It's providence. It's God moving the chess pieces to accomplish his purposes. And yet at the same time, it's not God causing Haman to be evil. Haman is freely choosing to do that which is evil. It's not, it's not God causing the king to sign a death warrant for his people. It's the providence and the mystery of God, people freely choosing that which God has ordained. And so as we go back to the story, the king is listening to the annals be read, right? He's listening to some history. And he hears the part about Mordecai's heroism. And he probably just kind of like sits up in bed maybe. Wait a second. What do we do for Mordecai? Like, how do we hook that guy up? How did we honor him? What kind of honor did we show him? And, and the servant, because you know, I can't remember. It was a while ago. And the servant says, ah, oh, yeah, yeah we, I don't know. 
We didn't do anything. Nothing? We didn't do anything. King's like, man, we got to change that. We got to change that right now. Sun's up, guns up. Let's, I mean, let's roll. We got to make amends. And so right about that time, in strolls Haman. And Haman's up early, man. He's got pep in his step. He's just like, oh, it's going to be a good day. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. I'm going to kill Mordecai today. I mean, he's just feeling good. And, 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 and the king says, who's that? Bring, bring, who is out there? And they said, well, that's Haman. He said, bring him in. I need to talk to Haman. So Haman's like, well, of course he wants to talk to me. I'm Haman. I'm his guy. So he comes into the king, strolls on in. And as he walks in, the king looks at him. King Xerxes looks at him and, says, and he asks him a question. He says, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? In other words, Haman, I've got a guy in mind. I just want to, mm, I want to bless him. I want to bless this guy. I want to honor him. What do you think? What should I do? And once again, knows the providence of God because he doesn't say who it is, does he? He says, the man, not Mordecai. So Haman hears this and thinks the king is kind of like coyly referring to him, referring to Haman. So Haman's like, man, my day's getting better and better. This is great. And so Haman responds and he says, hmm, okay. For the man whom the king delights to honor. Let's see here. Let royal robes be brought which the king has worn. Yeah, that's good. And the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I mean, this is good stuff. So Haman responds with this massive request. This massive request. He says, you want to bless the man? Let's go all out. Let's blow it out, okay? And he argues essentially to let this person be king for a day. Be treated like the king. Royal robes, got it. Royal crown, put it on his head. Royal transportation, front seat. Even get one of your top officials to lead it and to proclaim to everybody what's happening. And so Haman designs this reward with himself in mind. But unfortunately for him, it ain't him. We see that in verse 10. His world comes a crashing down. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And so Haman will not be killing Mordecai today. He will be honoring him. Mordecai is gonna have his moment and Haman is the one who designed it. Haman gets to participate in it. As a matter of fact, Haman gets to lead him out and proclaim it. So verse 11, so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It's like this beautiful picture, right? 
You can almost like envision Haman, Haman mumbling like, thus shall it be done. So the man who the king, and Mordecai says, hey, 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 come speak up, man. They can't hear you. A little louder. Enunciate. You know? Come on, Haman. And as we get this picture in our minds, let me just make three observations. Maybe, maybe three lessons that we can draw from this picture, from this scene. And it's a lesson of, of patience. It's a lesson of humility. And it's a lesson of repentance, all right? So a lesson of patience, of humility, and repentance. Let's start with patience. The events that Mordecai was being celebrated for happened years before. Years before. So there's a number of years that have gone by. It's not like Mordecai saved the king, and then the next day, Mordecai is riding on the royal horse. As a matter of fact, if you go back and look back in our story, if you recall, he saves, does this at the end of chapter 2. And how does chapter 3 begin? It says, and the king made Haman his number one guy. So Mordecai saves the king, and then he's passed over by the king, and Haman is elevated. And so there was probably years where Mordecai felt like he had just been totally passed over. My guess, my good deed will bring no blessing, no reward. But his act of doing good that had seemingly been forgotten is the very act that will save his life years later. And here's my point. Here's the point here. The return on investment, the ROI, for Mordecai's service to the king was enormous, but it wasn't immediate. The return of the service to the king, the return of it on his investment was enormous. It saved his life, but it wasn't immediate. It happened years later. There was a gap between his deed and the reward. And I think that illustrates for us something important to remember in our walk with God in our lives of following Christ, especially as we navigate a culture where we are trained, we are discipled to expect things to happen immediately, like now. I do this, I get this, right? I mean, that's how this works, and I should get it now. And while we have become accustomed to to speed and efficiency, God has all the time in the world. He has all the time in the world. And there's often a gap between obedience and reward. Those who do good for the king will experience his blessing, but that's according to God's timing. And that's according to God's design. And sometimes that's right away. Sometimes that's, that takes years. And sometimes it doesn't happen in this life. It doesn't happen in this life. Because we all know that the ultimate reward, the ultimate blessing, isn't designed to be found in this life. It's not on this earth. We get a taste of it on this earth, but the fullness is to come. And so there's a gap between the action and the reward, between the obedience and the blessing. 
And this is just one of, so one of the challenges then for any believer, much less a 21st century believer, in my opinion, is the need to cultivate what I would call a patience for blessing reception. Like a patience rooted in trust. That trust that God is actually in control. That he knows what he's doing. That he has a plan. And that I can trust him in that. And so I'm patient in that I don't need it to come right now. That I'm going to trust his timing. Recognizing that while my service for the king, my reward for serving the king may not be immediate, it will always be worth it. It will always be worth it. And so can I faithfully walk with patience in the gap, in the in-between as he works on me? Mordecai's good deed ultimately found its reward, but just not in the way he would have ever expected, but in a far greater way. And the same is true often for you and me. That God's reward will come in a way, and blessing will come in a way we don't expect, that we never could have imagined. And it typically involves a gap. So can we be, cultivate a spirit of patience awaiting that? So we have a lesson in patience. Secondly, we have a lesson in humility. Look at verse 12. It says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. You know what that means? It means he went back to work. That's where he worked. So he went back to his normal status. He didn't keep the titles and the honor that he had just received. Do you see that? He went back to the gate. The robes were returned. The crown wasn't his. And the royal transportation, that had, that had a 24-hour period to it. He's not the king. He was just getting to play the king for a day. It was all, hear me, temporary. It was all temporary. You see, Haman's problem was that he was not satisfied being a servant. He wanted to be a king. But there's just one king. There's only one king. And his pursuit of that his, his thirst for that is going to eat him alive. It's literally going to kill him and his family because he can't accept and walk in obedience as a servant. He's got too much pride, too much vanity. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book for our day and any day, but it's a book of wisdom about a life well lived. And if you, if you kind of just sum up the book of Ecclesiastes, this is kind of what it would say. Don't waste your life angling for royal robes that do not last. Royal crowns that are worn for a day and royal transportation that can't take you where you most desire to go. And if you read Ecclesiastes and you go to the end, this is how the book ends because he, he goes through all the things he's done, all the things he's had, all the success quote unquote, he's experienced. And he, and he finishes this way. 
He says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. See, at the end of the day, when he's gone through and he's looked at it every which way, and he's worn the robes, he's worn the crown, he's, he's ridden the royal transportation, and he's tasted the fruit, he's done all that. He says, at the end of the day, what life is, is to fear God and walk in obedience, recognizing I'm a servant, he is God, life is found there. That's what he says. That's the secret. That's the deal. There is one king, and there's great joy in serving him. And when we embrace that reality, we can truly be who we were created to be. And then we can, and we can ultimately go where God created us to go, but not clothed in some kind of pseudo temporary royal robes, but in the robes of righteousness that comes through the blood of Christ, that comes by grace through faith in Christ. And that requires humility. It requires recognizing you are God and I am not. You are on the throne. I am here to serve. And yet there's beauty in the fact that this is where I belong as a servant of the king. And so we have a lesson in humility. And then finally, we have a lesson in repentance. We have a lesson in repentance. Look at verse 12. It says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before, you, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So notice the contrast just with me. Mordecai goes back to work. Haman goes home. And when he goes home, he's got his head down. He's just humiliated and he's dejected. He's got a lot of self-pity, right? And the text does not outright say it here, but he really seems to view himself as what? As the victim. He views himself as the victim. He feels sorry for himself. He told them, look, look what he said. He told them everything that had happened to what? To him. Everything that had happened to him, which is just mind-blowing. He wanted to kill an entire group of people because one guy wouldn't bow. He's the, he went to work that day ready to hang Mordecai on the gallows. He designed the reward. He's the right-hand man of the king. But he is somehow the victim in his mind because Mordecai got honored instead of him. You know, Haman never deals, hear me, he never deals with his sin. He never owns it. He only focuses on what happens to him. Mordecai didn't bow before me. Mordecai got honored instead of me. Mordecai got the reward. And then when he goes home to share about his day, he's got zero remorse or repentance for what he has done to be in that position for all of this to happen. 
He never gets it. He never repents. He never owns his sin. And, and I would argue, and, and just hear me on this. I want to make a strong statement, but I'm, I mean, I really believe it. I would argue that much of our life hinges on how we respond when faced with our own sin. Like so much of our life and even our eternal life will rise and fall based upon our response to our failures. Our response to our sin. Marriages will rise and fall based upon what happens when you look in the mirror. Businesses can rise and fall. Relationships can rise and fall. Lives can rise and fall based upon how do you respond when you are faced with your own brokenness? And do you rationalize it and somehow it makes sense what you did? I mean, you had to do it. Do you feed it and say, well, I'm I'm just going to keep doing it because I like it? Do you ignore it or do you own it and then turn from it? What do we do when confronted with the realities of who we are? That in many ways will determine the quality, the destiny of your life. Do you have the humility to turn from your sin and to recognize your own failings and to realize that life is found not only when we turn from our sin, but when we turn ultimately to the Savior. Because when we turn to the Savior, I'll close with this. This is what we find. You don't find someone looking to hang us on the gallows. You find someone who came to hang on the gallows for us. You don't find someone whose pride is offended because we struggle to bow. But somebody who, while on the gallows, said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You don't find a king oblivious to the needs of his people. You find a king that left his throne to meet the greatest need of his people. That's the king. That is King Jesus. And if you will turn to this king in faith, then that which awaits you is the greatest of all rewards. And your name will be found in the most important book of all, the book of life. So turn to him, turn to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks again for another morning to be together with your people, to celebrate the goodness of your grace, to be reminded of what it is you have done. And even as I think about the lessons from this morning, God, that's ultimately something in Christ you model for us. God, you are so patient. You are so patient with us in our wandering, in our doubt, in our lack of devotion, in our propensity to serve ourselves. God, you patiently deal with us as a loving father, always receiving us with your grace. And God, you're the ultimate picture of humility. 
because you wore a robe as well, but it on this earth, but Lord Jesus, it was a robe that you wrapped around your waist as you washed the feet of the disciples. It's a robe that you wore as you were whipped and beaten that we might wear the robe of righteousness that comes by faith through grace in your blood, through your blood. The humility of our Savior. And God, a lesson of repentance is that no matter where we are, you always receive us when we turn to you. In all our failings, in all our brokenness, in all of our baggage, in all of our lukewarmness, when we turn to you in faith, we turn to a Father who receives us with grace. Who doesn't tell us, go hang on the gallows for a while and learn your lesson. But one who complete, always points to the one who hung on the gallows for us. So Father, we thank you for just a beautiful reminder this morning. And I do pray right now, God, I pray for anyone in here or watching who has never turned to you in faith. They may know the right answers. They may say the right words. They may go to the right places, say the right things, be with the right people, but they've never trusted in you in faith. Father, would this moment be their moment? By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes, draw them to yourself, and they re would they recognize that the Redeemer is Jesus, who died for their sin and rose from the grave. Father, we thank you again for this church, for this morning, for the gift it is to be your children. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.